Well, welcome back to this final week in the Old Testament, uh, week number 26. And as exciting as it is to be finished, um, we're only really halfway through our task through the Old Testament. Now we're moving on to the New Testament next week. And really, we need to look forward to the New Testament. The Old Testament is important. It's foundational. And so we need to understand what's going on there. But ultimately, what we're pointing towards is to the New Covenant. Um, So today we're going to finish up with these last three books in your Old Testament. The last three books uh, uh, that are in your English Bible there. And uh, so let me uh, have a word of prayer and then we'll get into Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Lord, we thank You that You are God who has foreseen and known in advance all that will happen because it is all a part of your plan. Thank you that nothing takes you by surprise and that you have laid out for us in your word what you expect of us and you've also laid out for us how you have worked mightily in the past. And we pray that you'd help us to see as we look at these prophets uh, ourselves in light of our own sin and in our, our need for a Savior, a Redeemer. And we pray that you would uh, help us to view ourselves and you rightly in light of what we learn this morning. Thank you for your word and for how it instructs us. We pray that you would help us to reflect on our Savior in uh, this time and in the time to, to follow the service and the Lord's Supper as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may may remember from last week that the Jews had returned from exile, from captivity in Babylon. They made it back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple and the walls. And um, and that happened around 520 B.C. They finished around 516. Um, we saw that in Ezra chapter 1 through Ezra 6. However, it doesn't tell the entire story of that time. Um, there's ongoing resistance throughout that period of time where they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. And... Um, What's happening here in Haggai is that this is during that time when they were supposed to be rebuilding the temple. Look at verse 4 of Haggai chapter 1. Haggai 1, verse 4. This is the word from the Lord through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? And then... Verses 5 and 6 give us the insight uh, about the context. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. The people have had a great opportunity to rebuild this destroyed temple, the one that they were estranged from for so many years. Now they're able to rebuild it. They're back in the city where the temple is. But they kind of say, well, that can wait. You know, I'm I'm back to my hometown and what I want to do more than building the temple is to use my time and my resources to take care of my own home first. And that's why God says to them, verse 5, give careful thought to your ways or consider your ways. In other words, 
Look at what your attitudes and your actions are saying about what you're doing right now. Look at where you're spending all of your time and money. And uh, it goes to, the, to show that the people have returned from exile, but their hearts are still uh, exiled from God. And so there's some opposition going on, not only externally as the walls are being rebuilt, as the, the temple's being rebuilt, people wanting that process to stop, but also internally. There's also an internal opposition. And so that leads us to our theme that you have there, very simply, God demands first place. And uh, you have an outline on the back for your benefit. And I'll just uh, make you aware of that and we'll... Uh, We'll move on with our study. Chapter 1, let's look at some more context here. Let's look at a part of what Haggai's sermon was to these people in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains. Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. What is God telling them to do first? Verse 7, same thing that He said in verse 5. Consider your ways. So think. The very first thing they need to do is think. And then the next thing they need to do, verse 8, is to act. You need to think about what you're doing and then act upon it. Act upon what I'm telling you to do. And notice what the motivation should be. What should be their motivation in verse 8? Right, to glorify God. A theme that has come up throughout the Old Testament. We saw it in Isaiah. We saw it in Exodus. We saw it in many of the books. Uh that God is working to glorify Himself. And this is the reason that they should be obeying Him. They ought to be rebuilding the temple because they should want to glorify God. And so this is a great principle that we all should learn, that everyone in the world should, should consider. And simply, we just need to ask ourselves, okay, am I pursuing this education, this job, this business, this, this uh, personal relationship, Am I pursuing this time that I come to church even? Okay, something that even could be seen as a religious activity. Am I pursuing these to, to glorify and praise myself or, or bring satisfaction to myself? Or am I doing it for God? Why am I working where I work? Why am I coming to church every week? What's the point of it? And if it is not for glorifying God, then then uh, we need to reconsider our ways. Well, how, un how will anyone move from a selfish pursuit of their own pleasures to zealously desiring the things of God? Well, verses 13 and 14 help us. They, um, we see why the people of Haggai's day turned to suspend the paneling of their own houses and resume building the temple. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Okay, we have the same phrase that we saw last week and the week before. We saw in, in Ezra at the very first part, Ezra chapter 1, I think is verse 1 or 2, and then also the week before in Second Chronicles, the very last two verses in Second Chronicles, the Lord stirred up the heart of King Cyrus at that time, pagan king, to lead them back to Jerusalem, back from exile. Here, what's the source or the reason 
that these people will finally stop looking at themselves and start doing the work. It is the Lord, right? It is the Lord who stirs up their hearts, stirs up uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest there, and then also all the remnant of the people. We're seeing this over and over again, that if God doesn't change people's hearts, they won't turn and and follow Him. And so, um, when the when there's credit to be passed out at the end of all of it, when the temple is finally rebuilt, we can't take credit. The, the people of Israel can't take credit. When things happen in our church, in our lives, that bring spiritual progress, we can't take credit for it because it was the Lord who stirred up the hearts. And uh, I think another implication of that is that we need to pray for the Lord to stir up our hearts. Pray for the Lord to continue to to cause us to work because we recognize that God is the one who works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Well, they finished the temple in 5.16, but look at chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Remember last week that there were when the temple was finally being rebuilt, there were people who were experiencing great joy. There was praise going on all over the place. But there's also people who were crying. Do you remember this? And we said the reason that that was was because they remembered the temple in its former glory. They remembered that Solomon's temple was much better than this temple that was now being rebuilt. Rebuilt, And uh, so they recognized that there was still something more to come. And I think that's why God points this out here through His prophet Haggai. Do you remember the temple in its former glory? See, some of these people were old enough to remember that 50 years ago was when the temple was actually destroyed. They were, they were old enough to remember that formal, former temple and all of its beauty before it had been completely stripped of its gold and its uh, precious stones and all of its accoutrements, the things that they... They would use the cups and the bowls and all those sorts of things. They remembered what it looked like and what it was like to be a part of that. And now it's being destroyed. And um, and, and even this rebuilt one, it doesn't quite satisfy. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What is God saying there in verse 9? Okay, he's saying, do you remember the former glory, verse 3? Do you remember what it was like when Solomon built that beautiful temple? Well, what I'm telling you is that the future glory of this temple is going to be greater than the previous glory. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. When is this going to happen? Because it doesn't look like it's coming to pass right now. It doesn't look like there's a whole lot of glory Uh, in this temple currently. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel, as you remember from last week, 
was the Jewish governor of Jerusalem when the Jews returned from Babylon. And so the question is, will this great new temple be built during His day? Well, no. He's actually a symbol of something greater in the future because the focus of this verse is not on the person Zerubbabel, but on the family of Zerubbabel. Do you remember which family line he was a part of? David's, right? He was the son of David. This is prophesied in the, uh, or actually it was recorded in the Chronicles when we saw the chronologies that it was in the line of David that Zerubbabel was was, uh, coming from. And so he's a descendant of David. And, And so all these old prophecies concerning David's house are really concerning David's greater son, not Zerubbabel himself, but someone who would come through the line of Zerubbabel, the line of David. David, And that greater son, we know, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Haggai is saying that this great temple, this, this will be greater than all the prior temples. And it will be built through the, the greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a physical temple. It will actually be a temple of people. And that's why God says, I will build a house for you, David. He's talking about a line or a a continuing uh, uh, descendancy through David. And uh, as we know, the the New Testament uses language of the temple to refer to people as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 that we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Peter says that Christ is the chief cornerstone and and that we, as we come to Him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, we are like living stones and are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5. God is the builder. Jesus is the foundation. The temple that comes through the person of Jesus Christ is far greater than than the temple in its former glory at any time in history. All right, so that's Haggai briefly. In a nutshell, um, we need to move on to Zechariah if we want to finish these last two books. Any questions on Haggai or comments? All right. Zechariah shares about the same historical context as Haggai during the rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah begins preaching only a couple months after Haggai does. And he continues to prophesy all the way until the temple is completed. And so Zechariah spends his chapters explaining what all that has happened between uh, the return of the exile to the future future, um, glory of the temple. And he's talking much about the the, um, Messiah and the future expectations that come along with being um, part of uh, this people of God. Um, So he uses what's going on currently to help paint a picture of what's going on in the future. And this can be seen through the the resumed work of the temple and he brings along a, a sobering prophecy. Look at the theme there on your handout. It is that God will fulfill His purpose, His promise, excuse me, to live among His people through His Son, the Messiah. Now, Zechariah is full of, of, of a bunch of visions that really can be confusing, but if you understand the context of when they are written, 
Okay, they're written during the exile. It's a time of expectancy for the people. They're expecting this building to be put back together. And if you recognize what's going on there, um, then these visions will make a little bit more sense. They're actually referring to or pointing people forward to a future time when it will be even greater. So he's using um, his prophecy here to point people towards the future. The outline is on the back and that may help you as you study through it on your own. Well, there's a lot we can look at in Zechariah. It's a longer prophecy, but giving, given our time, we can only look at a little bit. A little bit. So let's turn to chapter 6. Maybe you've heard of Zechariah's visions in the night and you've wondered what all these images mean. Well, we're not going to go through them one by one, but we are going to read, um, help try to make sense of this long vision that precedes the prophecy. Look at verse 6, or I'm sorry, verse 9. We'll read through verse 15. The word of the Lord also came to me saying, Take an offering from the exiles from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder of the temple of the Lord of Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Okay, so what does all this mean? Let me just point out a few things. Notice in verse 11 that a high priest... Okay, think about this for a second. A high priest is given a crown. Okay, and then in verse 13, you see that the high priest is seated on a throne. Now, what type of person is usually given a crown and seated on a throne? A king, right? And so, so, but what we find here is that Joshua, verse 11, the son of Jehozadak, who is in a priestly line, he, he is a priest. The meaning here is that this future priest who will come will also be a king. Okay, notice in verse 12 that this person is called Branch. And you notice it's in capital letters if you have the New American Standard. Maybe some of the other translations do as well. And then when it's referring to that person, the, the pronouns, he and him, are all capital, capital letters as well. Look at verse 12 again. Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he, okay, capital H, will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Speaking of Jesus, and he goes on further. Now, they didn't understand that it was Jesus. They recognized that it was Messiah. And if you know um, from the Old Testament that this is not the only place where the name branch is used. It's used in other parts of the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah. Second Samuel uh, 23, Isaiah 4, Jeremiah 23, um, Hebrews 7 refers to this man named Branch. 
Well, of course, we know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, 5 and 6 says this, So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. And as He also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A little while later there in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, the writer points out that David and his descendants are of the tribe of Judah. And he says, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. The point of all this is that Jesus' priesthood is greater than any priesthood that ever came to Israel and that His kingship is forever. And so what we have now recorded for us in Zechariah is something that was really unheard of because in the Old Testament you had these two offices that were side by side. They were not never joined together here until really we see them joined here in Zechariah. You have the office of the priest who is supposed to be speaking on behalf of the people and then you had the office of the king who is supposed to be speaking on behalf of God in a sense. And you have these two offices come together in the cross in Jesus Christ that He has now made both priest and king. And um, and obviously this this uh, I guess these two offices or this one office is now made one this priest king uh, responsibility now that Jesus has is is one that will last forever that Jesus is both our priest and our king Revelation nineteen twelve describes Jesus as with eyes like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. And the reason that this prophecy here in chapter 6 helps shed light on the vision of the night in chapters 1-6 through is because the vision has a number of scenes that seem to focus to a time that's still future. It focuses to a time that that has not yet come. And um, so let me just briefly show you a few other texts and then I'll take questions and comments if you have them. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and He will speak peace to the nation, nations, and His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When was this prophecy fulfilled? Verse 9. Remember? Jesus uh, rode the little donkey in uh, Matthew, but I can't remember what chapter it is. Right. I think it's um, maybe chapter 11. Uh, I can't remember either. But um, uh, I'm, Actually, I'm thinking Mark, but it's also recorded in Matthew, yes. And that's when He comes into the city, his uh, what we call His triumphal entry, where He rides in a donkey. The idea is there that he is, yes, a humble king. That's what it says here in verse 9. He's humble, but also the idea of a donkey, riding on a donkey, has the idea of bringing peace. See, if he came on a horse, that has more the idea of of bringing judgment upon the people. And at some point in the future, he will come riding on a horse. But at that time, he was coming bringing peace. And, um, and uh, that, in fact, was um, fulfilled in... Jesus Christ when He came into the city. Verse 10, however, I think is still unfulfilled. 
that is something that will be fulfilled still future. It's a time when He does bring ultimate peace, but in order to do that, He has to bring judgment first. And that's why it says at the end that His dominion will be from sea to sea, that He will have reign over all, and that um, He will be the King forever. Um, then uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 13, verse 7. Chapter 13, verse 7, another familiar verse if you know your New Testament. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Before this final exaltation can happen, there has to be a rejection according to Zechariah that the the shepherd that comes is going to be rejected, that he's going to be struck. And you remember that this was fulfilled when the disciples all scattered at his suffering and his death. And um, However, after his oppression, his rejection, he will triumph and avenge over his enemies. Look at 14, chapter 14, verse 4. In that day... His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. Verse 16, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Verse 20, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judea will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Now, Zechariah might not have understood all of the implications of what he was saying, but he certainly understood the meaning that they were looking forward to a future time. That's why he keeps saying over and over again, in that day, which if you remember from our study through the Minor Prophets, uh, that is a marker that points us forward to the end times. In in that day, speaking of the time that's still future for us. And what it's talking about there is that these cooking pots and these bowls and that these bells on the horses will all be holy to the Lord. All that means is that everything that once was secular now will become sacred. Okay, that, that There will be no sinfulness. It's, it's an, uh, not that those things are inherently sinful on their own, but the idea is that everything will be uh ceremonially clean, I guess we could say. And that that there will be no sin. That's why at the very end, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. It causes me to remember or to to, uh, reflect on Revelation when it says that that the dogs will be outside. That is, that inside of this Holy of Holies, this Jerusalem that we will live in forever, this kingdom, this eternal kingdom, um, there will be no sin, no sinners, no Satan, no demons. There will be uh, righteousness and purity forevermore. Alright? Any uh, questions or comments on Zechariah or Haggai? We can go back there if you'd like.
Yeah, Trish. Which verse is that? 16, 14, 16. Okay, yep. Which is, you know, that basically everybody who wasn't a Jew who did attack Jerusalem, they must have believed in the Lord. Right. Right. Now there's a, yeah, there's a, something that, that allows this, the, this picture to be broader than just the Jewish people, which is obviously a, a message of hope for us. All right, good. Anyone else? Bill? Jew and Gentile they inherit the earth during the millennium and throughout eternity while we live in the New Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which comes down from heaven, but we don't know if it actually, well, it don't come to earth because the Bible doesn't say it comes to earth. So the Jew and Gentile in the Old Testament inherit the earth and we inherit the New Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah, and the great part about that day will not be all the um, the wealth and the mansions or those such things that we tend to think about, but it'll be the presence of God forevermore. We'll be able to enjoy perfect fellowship with Him, um, really like never never before. Although Adam and Eve did enjoy perfect fellowship with Him. They hadn't been saved from anything, so we have much greater joy that we can experience. Phil? Uh, John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, where it talks about mansions, that word simply means abiding place. Right. And that's why I say we tend to think about, that's a good point, we tend to think about it as mansions, like as if, you know, we have the Jacob Elwert mansion up there and come on by and see if you like it or not. But really, that is, it's abiding places, which more has to do with the ability to be able to dwell with God. That's that's the idea that I take from there. And we I think that that's an unfortunate translation because it's really built a whole theology on on uh almost self centered sort of heaven. I mean there are going to be joys and, and I guess there's going to be gifts from God. Uh you, you obviously have the crowns that we can receive as a result of our uh work here on earth. Uh, you have the streets of gold and the crystal sea. I mean, obviously, that's not made only for God. It's for us to enjoy as well. Um, but we shouldn't see heaven as a place for us primarily. It should be a, uh, a dwelling place where we can be with God. And so, thank you for pointing that out, Bill. That is, that is an excellent point. Malachi. Malachi lived at roughly the same time as Nehemiah, the late 5th century B.C. And his main concern is to guard the people or turn the people from, from uh, their straying from God, their, their move towards secularism. Their, their problem is that they don't have hearts for God. Their hearts are for the world. And so now that the people are back in the land, the temple's rebuilt, what's creeped in to these people within their uh, ranks is a sense of apathy, complacency. And uh, as you know, Malachi is the last book in your Old Testament. Um, And historically speaking, Malachi is the last known or last recorded, canonized, I guess we could say, prophet, the one that made it to the Scriptures. 
And then between Malachi and the New Testament is how many years, roughly? About 400 years. So we don't have another person speaking on behalf of God, at least uh, special revelation, uh, regarding special revelation, from Malachi all the way until who's the first prophet in the in the New Testament? No, the first prophet who in Matthew records John the Baptist. Yep. So between Malachi and John the Baptist, you have 400 years of silence. And interestingly enough, Malachi actually prophesies about this next prophet. So it's almost as if Malachi knows he's the last one. Like like he knows that there's going to be this silence. Doesn't know how long, probably, but. But um, what he's saying here in his book is that the, the great and terrible day of the Lord is, is not going to be long from now, as we see in chapter 4, verse 5. Well, the theme there that you have on your handout is that God's people are beginning to drift away again, so God will need to come visit them soon. God's solution for their drifting away into secularism is to come to His people. As you begin to drift away, my response to that is, I'm going to come myself in the form of Jesus Christ, obviously in the form of His Son. And and that's exactly what we find happen when we start at the beginning of the New New Testament, the first pages. There's an outline there for you on the back. And um, what's interesting about the book of Malachi is that it's broken up into six disputes. Very different from any other uh, literature that we have seen so far, that these are disputes between God and His people. God begins with a charge against the people and then He answers on behalf of them. He says, this is what you've done. And then He answers on behalf of the people, but how have we done this? And then He responds and says, this is how you've done this. And often there's a following response by the people. and But God is basically disputing with the people and showing them that they have strayed from Him. Look at chapter 1, verses um, 13 and 14. You also say, My, how tiresome it is! And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. We see here that the people thought that they could bring these lame or blemished animals to God. They thought that there was some magical uh, thing that took place during these rituals that, that were going on, that if we just do them, then somehow this will appease God in some way. And He'll have to accept them because, hey, He wanted a sacrifice. We brought Him a sacrifice. They thought it was just, we just go through the motion and motions and God will accept it. But God says, don't you know who I am? Look at the end of verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Okay, I'm not just one of you. I'm not simply one of your governors or your leaders. I am God. I am the God of all the universe. Don't you understand that I am a great king and my name is to be feared among the nations? 
See, they, they weren't considering God in their worship. How many of us are challenged by this in our own worship? When we come before God, we offer Him just enough. What's the least amount that I can give to you, God, and you still be happy with it? That's often the way that we treat our worship of Him. Okay, Do I need to read this portion of Scripture every day? Do I need to just be awake during the services? What, what do you want from me? I'll give it to you. And this type of thing can happen with the Lord's Supper as well, which we're going to observe today, because we do it so often, along with you know all of our other worship services that we're part of, we do it so often, we often forget what we're doing. We think that there's some magical key that if we just do the thing, then God will accept it. But the, but what God wants is, yes, He wants the, the act of worship. He wants the act that He set out for us to do. Okay, That is, these services that we participate in and the Lord's Supper and our service, whatever other type of service we do to Him, the ones that He's laid out. Yes, He wants those. But He wants your heart behind them as well. And so easy for us to drift into complacency. Well, we don't have time to look at all of these. Um, we don't have time to look at all these disputes, but we'll look at one more. Chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you are, uh, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Okay, I said in this book we see that the people of Israel are drifting towards complacency. They, they've drip, drifted towards secularism, turned it into just a big ritual. And what they think here is that their money is their money. And what God is saying is, no, you're actually, you're actually giving to me, giving to me what's already mine. That's why He says, "Don't rob me. That's mine. I own everything that you have. And so, if you withhold it from me, then you're actually, it would be no different from you stealing from my uh, storehouse. And um, so, it, this is just another example of how these people have drifted away towards complacency and how they, their hearts have drifted away. Well, from all of this, I'd like to make a further application that we as individuals and as a community of believers need to be careful about the tendency to drift towards secularism. You see, secularism invades a church and the people can become more and more worldly and me-centered, man-centered. And it often comes in unexpected ways. We never get to a place, okay, personally or as a church, where we just wake up one morning, you know what? I really feel like rejecting God today. I really feel like turning my back completely on Him and not doing anything that He has told me to do. We, we never just automatically wake up like that one day. What happens? It's a slow drift, isn't it? We start out making wrong choices. We start off, uh, we start off just... Uh, giving in to simple little sins, and over time, uh, we, we finally give up on God completely. This You've seen this in other churches. 
Okay, where, where there are churches that once were solid, once were God honoring, once were preaching the truth, and now maybe after 50, 60 years of you watching them, you've noticed that they have completely rejected God. Well, that didn't just happen overnight. Okay, and you've also seen people like this who were committed to the body of Christ. They were committed to God and His and following Him, and then and then now you look at them and you see that they've completely abandoned the things of God. They don't come to church at all. They care nothing about God's purposes or God's principles or God's commands. That didn't happen overnight. It happens over a period of time. And so, obviously, we understand the implication of that personally. That we need to be careful what we're allowing into our lives. We're, we need to be careful that we don't drift. But, but as a church, I would say that the application is that we need to stand strong on the principles upon which we have received from the Scriptures. We need to stand firmly upon those. That means we need to understand what they are and we need to uphold them and work hard to, to teach them to other people because it's not just for our sake that we don't drift into apostasy, but for the sake of our children and our grandchildren. Okay, that, that they are able to maintain the same sort of truth. You may have had a great life of serving God, but, but just because you have doesn't necessarily mean the next generation will. See, often the next generation doesn't see things like you do because they haven't experienced the same things that you do. And so they're willing to give up a few more things. They don't understand why you serve God so faithfully. Maybe they haven't tasted and see, seen for themselves that God is good. And so for the sake of our children and our grandchildren, for the sake of the next generation of this church, we need to stand strong, stand firm in the foundation of the Scriptures and what, what they teach. One last point, chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is what I was talking about earlier, that it's a prophecy about this next prophet in line. 400 years later, John the Baptist. John is this Elijah who is expected to come. And he had to come before Christ could come. He was the forerunner to Jesus Christ and His ministry. And so what this means for the people of Malachi, or people reading Malachi's prophecy or hearing it firsthand, is that this Savior, this Redeemer is going to come and He was going to uh, set off or, or continue the events that are leading to the, the day of the Lord, the final judgment and blessing that will come. And then, uh, so after you read there verse 6, uh, then there's silence for 400 years. All right, any questions on Malachi or uh, any comments? I wish we had t more time for this book. It's a great one to uh, study through. Lots of things that touch down to what we, what we are like today often. Well, we ended our study here in the Old Testament and I, I hope that it's been an encouragement to you and that you've benefited from it. Perhaps you will continue to benefit from it as you study through these on your own. Um, and there are many good reasons to spend half of a year, 26 weeks, uh, to studying the Old Testament. Number one, the Old Testament is just as much the Word of God as the New Testament. 
Through the Old Testament, it helps us to understand more about God and His purposes. And so, uh, although sometimes it's tough treading through it, trying to understand the concepts, the context, the, the, the way that their society uh, was and how they acted. I mean, we're talking about uh, some over 1,500 years ago, over 2,500 years ago. Um, it, it is tough going through it at times, but I would encourage you to work through the Old Testament. Read through it regularly. Do a, um, Have a regular time where you're reading through it. We have a a Bible reading schedule that takes you through half of the whole test, Old Testament in one year. It's basically a chapter a day. It's not that much. Not, it's not go- going to kill you. In fact, it will be a great benefit to you. And if you work hard at trying to understand it as you go through instead of just trying to check off your list, you will start to see that, that it is important to God and is, to understanding who God is, who we are, what our sin is, and what God's purposes are. Secondly, it's important to go through the Old Testament because it helps pave the way for our understanding of the New Testament. Um, much of what we learn in the New Testament comes from uh, things that we should have already known in the Old Testament. And so, I hope you'll get a deeper understanding and appreciation for the New Testament because of having gone through this course together. Thirdly, it's important because up to 10% of the New Testament is Old Testament material in the form of quotation or allusion or, um, or, uh, or a corollary. So, besides just getting on a, a good grasp on the New Testament as a whole, knowing specific Old Testament passages, and that's why I've tried throughout this time as we've gone through the Old Testament, is point you forward to what this is going to mean when we get to the New Testament and understanding there. So, hopefully, you'll understand more some of the parts of the New Testament because of your time here. Fourthly, the Old Testament is a collection of books about the Lord and Savior. The Old Testament is about Jesus. His name is not mentioned uh, as Jesus, but but it is about the Old Testament. You remember when he was on the road to Emmaus with Luke, or in the Gospel of Luke, with the two men? He said he said it says that he showed them from the Scriptures who he was from the Old Testament. That's all they had that time, right? So he showed them who he was, and um, so really, what we see in the Old Testament is the revelation of this Savior that was to come. And um, so hopefully, above all else, that you've seen the greatness of God's plan and the greatness of God's Savior, this Jesus Christ that will come as we study here in the New Testament. Any final thoughts? How's that? Well, if you read it, it says, And I put in between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Hmm. Yes. Leave that on out completely. But yeah. Talk about the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, you don't get too far into the Old Testament before you, you do see a reference to the coming Savior that has to come and crush the serpent. All right, and um, although that hasn't finally happened, it ha- he has taken a huge blow, and so he's reeling right now. Satan is, and uh, there will be a time when his head will be crushed completely. All right, let's pray, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for 
Your grace and salvation. Thank You for Your grace in providing for us the revelation that You have wanted us to understand. And although it is tough at times to understand uh, all these things, we, we know that it's not veiled. It's not uh, hidden messages. It's not something that we need to decode. But it is uh, simple uh, language that's given to us in, in uh, a normal way. And so we pray that You'd help us to understand it and uh, recognize what is being said there in relationship to um, ourselves. So that we understand more about who we are, more about who You are, more about our estrangement from You, and and uh, more about how we ought to serve You. Thank You for uh, giving us wisdom, and we pray that You continue to do so as we study through these Old Testament books on our own as we read through them. May it help us in our understanding of the New Testament that we begin next week. Thank You for this time to follow where we can worship You. May our hearts be engaged so that we do not go through the motions in a mechanical way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.